Let me start with this message because otherwise we will be here till three o'clock and drive to El Shaddai together. Um, so as you guys know, um, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to start by praying. So would you guys pray with me as I pray? Would you pray for um, this message as I go to the Lord right now? Lord, I, I uh, just want to ask your help. I, um, Lord, you, you saw, you see my week, you, you see everything and uh, all my failures and my steps forward. And I just, um, I just declare my great need for you right now, uh, my sense of need for you, um, my desire for your Holy Spirit to bless your people, um, despite my weaknesses and sins, and, um, and to use whatever you would out of what I've tried to prepare here uh, very imperfectly. Um, God, please glorify yourself, uh, and please help me, Lord God, to be faithful to your people. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would be here um, attending your people, and you'd have mercy on me um, as I preach from your word and try to uh, speak about you, Lord God. I pray that you would protect me from dishonoring you, and that, Lord, you would, in great mercy, um, uh, just glorify, nourish, guard, and magnify your name and your goodness. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for praying with me. Uh, I feel better than I did several seconds ago, um, even. So after many weeks, you guys know I've been wanting to return more specifically to the devoted series that we were in before COVID, which we were using to consider the heart and the life of the church as it first appeared in Acts 2. And that was what we, were, we had on the table for uh, this morning. And it just so happened that this is also Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday is the very occasion in which the, the, the passage in Acts 2 that focuses on the experience and values and heart of that first church happens. In other words, when you look at Acts 2, it starts with Pentecost and it ends with the, the first church. And so this passage, that's the key passage of our little series, Acts 2.4.2, which talks about the church being born, gathering around the truth of God and fellowshipping with each other and sharing their lives with each other. It, it doesn't start there. It starts with Pentecost and Pentecost Sunday. And Pentecost Sunday, as many of you probably know, is the day that the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples and came upon the world in a way he had never come on the world before, where Jesus, having died and risen to the Father's right hand, poured out the promise of the Holy Spirit that he'd been making through his whole ministry and that God had been making uh, for centuries. And we, we've looked at that in other messages fairly recently, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Remember, one of the messages was about Jesus saying, as the Father has sent me, I send you, receive the Holy Spirit, and he breathes on them. Remember, one of our other messages was about um, that we experience the Holy Spirit as we embrace Jesus, the truth about Jesus, that the Holy Spirit comes in power and, and, and life-changing power upon us as we, as we see Jesus and embrace who he is. Pentecost is the day that the Holy Spirit was first unleashed on the world in a new way where he came into people's hearts, changed their hearts, and stayed in their hearts forever. Um, and that's what God wants through the gospel for all people. So, um, so we're going to, but having said that, Pentecost Sunday in 2020 today is also a day of particular concern for a lot of us uh, because of what's going on around us in the news or in Ellen's case right outside her window or in Nancy's sister's case right down her street, uh, which is that the killing of George Floyd by this Minneapolis police officer and the protests and in many ways the destruction that the protests have sort of been hijacked by has been happening, not just in Minneapolis, but now in many other cities across the country, and in a way that we probably haven't, I haven't seen, at least that I'm aware of, uh, in, a, in my lifetime. And, and I don't know that it's been, I don't know if, if what happened with Rodney King or what happened with Ferguson ever got this bad, um, but but it's it's worse than I've, I can remember ever seeing. So I, I have been reflecting on this. I know many of you guys have been reflecting on this. and. Uh, 
and I, I, I felt that maybe the best thing I could do um, and in a very imperfect situation was, as we reflect on Pentecost, I'd like to make some observations about what happened at Pentecost for, for not just our church, but for the specific occasion that we find ourselves in, in our circumstances as a nation. Um, so, but we're going to start with the text. So if you guys have your Bibles, this whole um, sermon will start at Acts 2, verse 1. We're going to go through the whole chapter and and um, and try to take out things for us personally and, and ways to help us look at what's going on. So Acts chapter 2 is all about the day of Pentecost. It begins with Pentecost and it ends with the birth of the church. So <laughs> if you have Bibles, just go to Acts chapter 2. I'm going to start at verse 1. We'll go through the whole passage and then we'll have some closing observations. Um So, starting in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, that's speaking of the disciples, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them, and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let's stop here for just one second. To understand Pentecost, we need to really understand the, the feasts in the Jewish calendar. So we've got to talk about feast days for the Jewish people. Uh, these feast days were important to God when he brought them uh, through Moses into freedom some 1,500 years before this Pentecost day. They've been celebrating Pentecost for centuries. Um, and, and these feast days, like Pentecost, became also ways that God fulfilled the truth of his son. So they now have, because of, we're believers who have now experienced Jesus Christ, we see many of these feast days in, with double reference, in, in, in extra form, so to speak. So consider the Passover feast. Uh, the Passover feast, if you guys remember from your Ten Commandments movie with, uh, with Charlton Heston, it commemorates the exodus from Egypt. The pinnacle of that exodus, 1,500 years before Christ, just about, was, was when the angel of the Lord visited Egypt with the last plague, killing all the firstborn of Egypt. And what he commanded his people to do was to slaughter a lamb for redemption from slavery and to put the blood over the doorpost of their house. And as the angel of the Lord visited the city with judgment and destruction, when he would see the blood of the lamb, he would pass over. Passover, Passover. He would pass over the blood of the lamb and he would not visit his judgment on any family or household where the blood of the lamb was over that household on its door. So it it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see why Jesus set up his arrest and his crucifixion on the Passover night, okay? Jesus became the Lamb of God whose blood takes away our sin and whose blood protects us from the judgment of God for our sins. And that's why the Passover has now become communion. When we have communion, the Lord's Supper, we're really commemorating that Passover feast that Jesus was celebrating and seeing its new fulfillment in not the blood of of a literal lamb, but the blood of the Lamb of God poured over us so that God's judgment passes over us. And following the Feast of Passover was the, called the Feast of First Fruits. First Fruits was a feast day to commemorate the very first signs of harvest. It was the very beginning of spring. And, you know, you, you'd first get your, your tiniest little harvest of grain and you would offer it to the Lord. And, and do you know what Jesus did on the day of the Feast of First Fruits? On that day, Jesus decided he would rise from the dead. So the day of first fruits was actually two days after the Passover lamb celebration in our calendar. Jesus rose from the dead. It's Easter Sunday. This was, again, not a coincidence of timing. This was the way God set it up. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So that so we've got the feast of Passover, we've got the feast of first fruits. Feast of Passover is is Good Friday, aligned with Good Friday and and uh, the Last Supper. The feast of first fruits is aligned with Easter Sunday and the resurrection of Christ. And then some fifty days later, we have the feast of Pentecost. The feast of Pentecost in Hebrews, it's called the the feast of I'm probably pronouncing it poorly Shavuot. 
feast of Shavuot, which means week or seven sevens, and it commemorates a, 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 a set of seven weeks, a seven 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 day periods. Which I, you know, if, if we got really into it, we'd go into Daniel and look at the seventy sevens and all this stuff. But basically, it means. 49 days after the Feast of First Fruits, we celebrate the full fruits. We celebrate the full harvest, okay? Uh, so God gives the Israelites 49 days after the day of first fruits to bring in all the harvest. And on the, the, the 49th day since the day of first fruits, we celebrate the Pentecost, the day of the full harvest, okay? And it, it also was a commemoration of God giving the law to Moses because he did that <laughs> the, the 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 solidification. Uh, let me just, without spending too much time there, it also commemorated the giving of the law at at Mount Tabor um, at Sinai when when God had first given the law to the Israelites. So, the word Pentecost is a Greek word. Uh, we don't say Shavuot usually; we say Pentecost, but it's a Greek word that means fifty. Uh, and that's a little complicated because I just talked about 49 days, but it's it's the 50th day since the first fruit. So you take the day of first fruits, you add 49, you get to the 50th day. And that's why we call Pentecost Pentecost because it's a Greek word for 50. Um, so on this day, the day of the full harvest, to celebrate the full harvest, the Lord decided to bring in a great harvest through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus promises on the day of the full harvest, to celebrate the full harvest, Jesus' Holy Spirit comes in great power in symbols of, of fire, uh, God's power and God's holiness, and in symbols of God's life, breath or wind. And, and he brings it upon the disciples. And then let's see what happens next, going back to verse 5. Now there were dwelling in, this is verse 5 now, that there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them, the disciples speak in their own language. Each man from whatever nation he was from and women who were probably there as well, they were hearing the disciples speak and whatever they were saying, they were hearing it in their own language, even though they were from various nations. Verse seven, and they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. In other words, they're drunk. So what, what I want us to do here is just stop and, and recognize that God intentionally chose a day for Pentecost in which people, because of the feast regulations and the requirements of that feast, he chose a day in which people from every nation under heaven access, which is a bit hyperbolic, but it means every nation we're aware of at the time of the writing. Every nation under heaven brought people who had come to faith in Yahweh, either through the Jewish relationship, either through their bloodline, or as foreign proselytes, as converts, that he brought them to Jerusalem for this feast. And, what, 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 and, and the author of Acts highlights it. I mean, Luke goes, who wrote Acts, goes through every single country. You know, you heard that, nation after nation, this place and this place and this place and this place and this place. He doesn't just say, from every nation they came. He then starts to unpack. So he's really trying to get you to see, everyone is here from every nation. And, and other theologians, and, and I think it's very fair, have, have sort of seen this as a great reversal of, of what happened to the Tower of Babel. If you remember thousands of years earlier in the Tower of Babel incident, all of man is gathered in great arrogance and great pride at what they can do in reaching to heaven 
They want to glorify themselves. And God comes down in the story in, in Genesis and, and he confuses the languages. He diversifies into many languages, the one language they had to hear each other. And there's massive confusion. And, but the byproduct of that is that mankind spreads across the globe into many nations and, and possibly develops into many different ethnicities over thousands of years. And so now we have in, in, in this story in Acts 2, because of what God is doing, we have this great reversal of that separation and a picture of the coming together of nations and ethnicities as they experience this miracle of being able to hear each other, of being able to communicate with each other about the Lord in their own languages through miracle of what is being said. It's a reversal of Babel from confusion and, and a diversity that's born of confusion to keeping the diversity, but now there's harmony, there's understanding, there's common, there's common sight together around the Lord, around Jesus. So, but obviously that's not the only thing going on, right? They're, they're, they're freaked out, they're bewildered, and then some are mocking. They're just saying, this is ridiculous. This is a, a joke. So, so we go to verse 14 now. Let's go to verse 14 as Peter tries to clear this thing up. But Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. I think that meant 9 a.m. He's like, it's still morning. It's too early for beer. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. <clears throat> and then he quotes this prophecy from centuries before from the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and my female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And then we go down to verse 21. He quotes Joel. Joel ends his prophecy in, in Peter's retelling this way. And it shall come to pass, come, and it shall come to pass that everyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone, all flesh, all the world, who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And as we've spoken about again recently, Peter proclaims, hey, everybody, what you're seeing here is the unleashing of Joel's prophecy and the unleashing of what God always wanted to do, which was to pour out his Holy Spirit on all people. And again, Joel stresses and Luke re recites all flesh. Well, here it is, all flesh, all these nations represented from all over the world as they were known then. Now Peter goes on to say not only what has happened, but why it has happened and how they can be part of it. Why this happened and how the people hearing from all these many nations can be part of it. Okay, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. And now, uh, now, I'm sorry, Peter is quoting David from the Psalms. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. That is decay. That is rot in the grave. You won't let your Holy One rot in the grave. Verse 28, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter goes on to say, coming out of quoting David, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophecy, in other words, Peter saying, listen, Peter, David did rot in the grave. His body is in decay. His tomb's over, over there. We can go look at it. We can dig up his bones. 
he decayed. But then he says in verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he, David himself says, now he's quoting Psalm 110, the Lord, David is saying this, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, King David is saying, Yahweh said to my master. (laughs) So now we're dealing with the Trinity here, right? David, the king of Israel, is saying, I've got Yahweh, I've got one God, and I've got this other guy called the Lord, my master. It's It doesn't work without the Trinity. But coming back to Psalm 110, David saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So Peter is trying to help them understand that even a thousand years ago, David confessed that he he was dealing, that David was dealing not just with Yahweh, but with someone else called his Lord. So David says, Yahweh said to my Lord, and and, you know, this can only be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The king of Israel didn't have another king besides Yahweh in the conception of the Jews. And yet here's David saying, there are at least two people in the Godhead. Yahweh said to my Lord. And then Peter goes on, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 37, now when they heard this, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, turn and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you. And for all your children, all your children, and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And what happens? The Holy Spirit is experienced as Jesus is embraced as Christ and Lord and Savior. As as Jesus is embraced by this crowd in Peter's proclamation of the gospel, as Savior, as Christ, the Holy Spirit is experienced. Thousands in the crowd hear Peter's words, and the Holy Spirit opens their hearts to see that what Peter is saying about Jesus Christ is the truth. And this is the result. Verse 41. This is bringing us to our devoted series. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that is, to the truth about Jesus, and to the fellowship, caring about one another, being with one another around Jesus, and to the breaking of bread, that, that's communion and food, and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, They received their food with glad and generous hearts and praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. That's Acts chapter 2 from Pentecost to the first church. I just want to touch on, on four points this morning. I want to draw from this text. The first is this. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to create on earth 
a divine experience of unity. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. This is my first observation here. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to create on earth a divine experience of unity. Um, So point one, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to create a divine experience of unity on earth. The, The first thing that the Holy Spirit did on Pentecost was to establish a new people through the proclamation of the gospel. Notice this. The first thing the Holy Spirit did on Pentecost was to establish a new people through the proclamation of the gospel. I'm going to say a lot of obvious things this morning, because I think in Scripture a lot of times it's the obvious things that are easy to miss. So this is a very obvious thing. The first thing the Holy Spirit did on Pentecost was to establish a new people through the proclamation of the gospel. Think about why this is important. In John 16, Jesus tells the disciples, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit. And in Matthew 18, Matthew 22, before he sends, he says, I'm sending you to the ends of the earth. Okay, and that's what the Holy Spirit's for, sending you to the ends of the earth. In, in Acts 1.8, Jesus tells the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for power because they would be empowered to be his witnesses for him across the world. There's, so what we see at the end of Jesus' time on earth and the beginning of, of the apostles' life is this promise from God for the Holy Spirit, for world mission, right? So what might you expect when the Holy Spirit falls? I mean, if I was writing the Bible, if I was going to write Acts 2 about what was going to happen in Pentecost, I would think the Holy Spirit's going to fall and empower the disciples, and they're all just going to they're going to get their plane tickets and their train tickets and buy their horses, and they're going to scatter and go all over the world. And, and eventually, they do do that. But contrary to what I would have expected, hearing Jesus say, go to the ends of the earth, what the Holy Spirit first does before he sends them to the ends of the earth is establish a community of faith together, a family in him. He sends his Holy Spirit upon his followers, they preach the gospel, and God creates a church in a day. He creates a church. He doesn't start with missions. He starts by creating a church. I mean, in a sense, it's symbiotic because Peter's first act after Pentecost is to go on mission and evangelize. But the result of that isn't 5,000 missionaries that day are created. The result of that is a church is created. And and I'm not trying to set up one against the other. I hope you can see that. What what I'm trying to say is that, and you'll see hopefully why these two things are related. But but just follow me here for a second. God makes a church out of the proclamation of the gospel on Pentecost. He makes that word ecclesia. It means gathering. It means congregation. It's, It's people coming together. The church, God tells us in his word, is is more than just a a gathering together. It is his very body on earth. It is Christ's very body. It is his hands and feet on this earth. It is his bride. The church is Christ's bride. It's his beloved spouse, Ephesians 5 tells us. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that the church is the very temple of God. The family on earth in which God's own spirit dwells, not just individually in us, but communally in us, corporately together. That's why, it's, that's why having church on Sunday is a special thing, because God's glory is to be magnified corporately among us together. And, and, and though the church is more than missions, and it's more than evangelism, the church is central to mission. Because in God's plan to missionize the world, to evangelize the world, he doesn't only want us telling the world about himself. He wants us showing the world about himself through each other. He wants to give the world an experience of himself in one another, in his people. Trying to put it another way. God's aim for us is to be his image bearers, right? From from Genesis 1, let us make God, let us make man in our image, uh, all the way to Romans 8 that we looked at last week. We're, We're made to be conformed to the image of Christ. What is God's image? God's image is is ultimate, eternal, loving community. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, 
three in one, living together in an eternal relationship of love, one God, three persons, ultimate eternal loving community. Folks, we do not bear his image as God intended as individuals, but in relationship with one another. So what does God do when he saves you? Does he immediately send you to China or Uganda or to the Appalachians? For for most of us, he does not. And in history, for, for most of us, for very few people, does God immediately save them and then send them on a boat to another land, to another country. No, he calls you to become part of his family. He, he saves you and brings you into his people, his community. Your, let me put this in the right while, while God does, and, 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 and I want to kind of step a little bit deeper into this. Um, while God does unite you with all believers throughout time as he brings you into this church, God doesn't do that in abstraction. In other words, he doesn't call you to simply abstractions about who Jesus is or abstractions about being part of an ideology that's held by other people. What he does is he brings you to an actual group of people in real space and time. Your union with God in his church finds expression and is meant to find expression throughout the entire Bible in a specific group of people in space and time that he brings you into. And for many of us, this will be many communities over the course of our lives. But, but, but what I'm trying to get at this here is God is not looking for, for, for unity and relationship in abstraction. He brings you into real relationships that call forth from you over time, love, patience, kindness, forgiveness, encouragement, warning, comfort, sharing, grieving, with a group of people that's to be lived out day to day in an actual, messy, wonderful, disappointing, hard, joyful, growing, stretching relationships. This is God's plan for his people to draw them into relationship with one another. And and unless you're clear that the Lord wants you to uh, go to China tomorrow and he saved you yesterday, usually what God does is he asks you to evangelize in part, not just through your words, but through your witness as a community, your witness as a church. Um, and, and absolutely, he does take people from these local churches and send them to the ends of the earth to go and do different things, whether it's in Haiti or in China um, or in Nepal, as we've seen from our own community. But, but that's not how he usually starts with us. He starts by bringing you into a, a specific local church family where you are called to do these wonderful and difficult things of loving, faithful uh, forbearance. And I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm staggering here because I'm looking at my, my, uh, my actual notes on my computer. I don't see you guys anymore because something happened with my printer. So it's a little bit distracting. So I'm sorry about my, my stuttering here. Um, <clears throat> but, but this is, Coming back, this is what Jesus does when he saves. He, and, and we think about the, the idea of a church. Jesus is trying to train us in becoming lovers of one another in the same way he treats us. Like, he, Jesus doesn't love a theoretical you. He loves a, a real you. Like, all your warts, all your brokenness, all your failures, all your weaknesses, all your idiosyncrasies. And some of those he wants to change, some of those he loves because he created them. I'm not talking about necessarily not everything's sin. That's, that's weird about us. But, but God loves all of you, and his love is marked by a faithfulness to you. He isn't with you last week, but this week he's left you. And so when he calls us to be a people for one another, a central element of that calling is to be faithful to one another. Faithful when it's wonderful and faithful when it's hard. And and and. And this is his heart for you, is that you would experience faithfulness from his people and give faithfulness to his people, and that that faithfulness would would project outward into the community around you, that it would project outward to people who don't know Jesus, and they would say, this is different, this is different. This is something only God can do, right? And, and we see that reflected in John 13 and John 15 and John 17 when Jesus says, By this all men will know you're my disciples, your love for one another. 
And he says at the end in John 17, this is my prayer, that they would be one as, as we are one so that men might know that, that all people would know that you sent me, right? We've talked about this again, but it, 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 it's part of what's happening in Pentecost, the rest of his message. And, and as we've said so often before, if, if that kind of love isn't truly happening in our church family, then what have we got to offer to the outside world? We might have theology and the good news of Jesus, which is really important. It's central. But if it's not adorned with real love to one another, then the witness is harmed of that. I remember when I was being drawn to the Lord in 1992, the words that my friend Ken were saying were new to me. The words about Jesus, about grace. They're words that I'd never really heard before. I think the Holy Spirit was opening up my heart to understand it. But it wasn't just his words. It, it was who he was. I found him to be a person that was very strange in my experience. I'd grown up in a culture where what was valued was where you went to college. Like, and, and, and what was valued was getting great grades and being popular and good looking and drinking a lot, getting drunk and, and achieving great at sports. Those were the values. And, and this man had no interest in being conquered by, like being dominated by those values. His, his values, and I, you know, I, as some of you guys know, I, I'd grown up with him in high school. He was a regular partier like me. But when God got a hold of him, his values completely changed. And what I saw predominating his value towards me was just loving me, letting me be who I was, receiving me, have compassion on me, listening to me. And it, it just blew me away. So his words about Jesus had a legitimacy that was not only through the Holy Spirit's witness in my mind about the truth about Jesus, it was also from the Holy Spirit's work in his heart to make him the kind of person that seemed like he really believed what he was saying. And, and that's what God is calling us all to be as a church. And that's what he's creating on Pentecost. You see these people getting the truth about Jesus. And then you see in Acts 2.4.2, the way it explodes into their lives and the way that they worship God together, the way that they share one, with one another. And, and so that's my first point this morning is God's Holy Spirit came not just to send the disciples out to the ends of the earth, but to create a community that would legitimize that message that will go to the ends of the earth that the, the truth about Jesus and who he was would be spoken, but it would also be seen in the expression of the actual church that, that, that it formed. So, number two, God's glory is, is, is too big for, for one nation, for one skin color. Number two, God's glory is too big, this is my second point, for, for one nation and one skin color. Even though he creates this one church, God chooses to establish this one church on a day when it would have to include men and women from every nation on earth. Okay, so this is the second point. God's glory is too big for just one nation or just one skin color. Now, I, I don't know how many of these pilgrims from the other nations went back to their countries, but the, the strong implication of this text is that at least for a season, God was calling together a diverse group of Yahweh followers from all over the Mediterranean from Africa, Asia, and Europe, and obviously the Middle East, to become this first church in Jerusalem through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and one of the other clues that this wasn't just a, a festival and then everybody went to their different lands is that later in Acts 6, we see a dispute between Greek believers and Jewish believers in the church. And that dispute has to be solved by a group, I believe, that's made up, that, that the apostles set up of, of a, a, a sort of leadership team made up of, of Greek Christians and Jewish Christians to try to bring harmony and peace between the Greek Christians and the Jewish Christians who are divided at that point. And, and by God's grace, it's tended to and cared for. And then shortly following that in the book, we see the persecuted church move into Gentile territory, um, into Asia, and, and probably the first African Christian, an Ethiopian, outside of what happens on this day in Pentecost, is baptized, and it's Philip. My point in saying all, all this is that the Lord, from the very beginning of Pentecost, through the book of Acts, is moving his people into a functional understanding that Jesus is for all people, all nations, all ethnicities, all skin colors. Jesus is for all people. And that means that his church, in, globally and locally, needs to be for all people. And, and, and a core, 
corollary of this is something I know we know, but I just want to make explicitly clear on this morning of all mornings, is that God loves diversity. Now, we got to be careful with that word. It's a politically charged word. It's a politically correct thing. I'm not talking about the diversity that gets exploded so that we're talking about radical socialists, you know, left wing who who want to make our kids read books about uh, transsexuality in kindergarten class. That's not what I'm talking about. There, There is insanity there. Uh, in, in that kind of diversity, but the diversity I'm talking about is is not that. It's a diversity that that you've seen since you were a child. The diversity of of skin color, the diversity of age, the diversity of weight, the diversity of social economic status. God's first promise to Abraham was very specific about diversity. God said that He wanted to bless all families of the earth through Jesus Christ. That was God's first promise to Abraham. Jesus says that he is saving a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue in Revelation. In, in I think it's Revelation 7. In, in Matthew 25, at 24 through 25, the Olivet Discourse, Jesus promises that he will not return to this earth until his gospel has gone into every nation. He says, I'm not coming back until my gospel is gone into every single nation. And the reason he's doing that is because he wants to save people from every single nation. See, God created different ethnicities and nations to glorify himself. His glory is is too great for one's skin color or ethnic feature or language or music or you name it. There's a reason why there's a Christian rap group online you can get mp3s from and why you can get gregorian chants from centuries earlier online there's a reason why there's christ glorifying gospel music and christ glorifying latin requiems there's a reason why there's no such thing as christian language you know the the quran is written in in the supreme language Arab. And, you know, I've heard it said that you don't really understand the Quran until you learn the Arabic language and read it in the Arabic language. And that's the preferred language. There's no such thing as a Christian language. There's no such thing as a traditional Christian dress for for females. You just we've never heard of it. Right. It, it, it's be, And the reason is because the gospel of Jesus Christ. And his grace is meant to transcend social distinctions and to use diversity Okay, as Paul said to the Galatians, who these Galatians were being seduced into kind of a a, a first century identity politics of, of pseudo Christian Pharisees. Right. In order to be a real Christians, you have to follow these Jewish customs. There's and he says, no, no. In Christ Jesus, there is no Jew or Greek. There's no slave or free or male, or female. And he wasn't saying that God is erasing national distinction or gender. He's saying that our bond in Christ Jesus is greater than all those bonds. It unites you with all who are in Christ far deeper than being Jewish can unite you with other Jewish people, or being Greek can unite you with other Greeks, or being a female can unite you with other females, or being uh, in this socioeconomic class can unite you with other people in this socioeconomic class. You may not feel that way, you may not act that way, but your union in Christ is the deepest thing about you and another person, if you have it. Do, Do you know that in God's eyes, you have something far far more in common. In God's eyes, you, and in spiritual truth, you have something far, far more in common with a believing Ugandan, with a Christian Iranian, with a Jesus disciple from Malaysia, than you do with your own mother or father or brother or sister who does not belong to Jesus. Do you know that they are your true family in a way that your blood relatives who deny Christ are not and, and though those blood relative ties are still important to God, they do not compare in God's eyes to the ties that bind you to your family in Christ. And this is another way of saying, which I want to say on this day, that God hates racism, that God hates racism. And therefore, so must, so must we. And, and I, church, I know you know this. I, I don't think anybody in, this, in our church family would say, yay, racism. But, but I, I want you to, to see it deeply and in scripture today and in what we're looking at 
and just to to be able to have your heart settle on that again. God hates racism. He always has. And he's always been about making a people from every nation and all the families of the earth. And therefore, we must hate racism. And we must love the idea of being a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and skin color. So that's number two. Number three, remember the only solution that sticks. Remember the only solution that sticks. And this is what I mean. That was kind of a, a, a colloquial way of saying there is no true unity possible without the gospel because there is no heart transformation without the Holy Spirit working through the gospel. There is no true unity without the gospel because there is no transformation spiritually without the Holy Spirit. There's only one solution that sticks. When we're dealing with the riots, the destruction, the chaos, the racism, police brutality, the exploitation of, of race as an excuse to destroy cities, there is only one solution in the end that's going to stick. Many people in our world today, in our nation, are, are angry and they're hurting because they, they are longing for reconciliation and justice. They, they think that anyway. And even if their motives are perverted, they think they're going after something right, reconciliation and justice, the way they, they view it. But they are not going to find it from this world. Now, before you hear what I'm not saying, I'm not saying that we should not work for justice for George Floyd's life and his family, that we should not work for justice for the officers who were shot in Oakland this weekend or the, all the store owners whose houses and shop, shops have been burned to the ground. I'm not saying that. We, we should. God cares about peace and order. He wants leaders who walk with integrity and he wants justice and what I am saying, though, is that while we can and should work for that, we, we need to guard our hearts to recognize we will never find lasting peace on this earth until Christ comes. He has told us that up until the very end. In fact, the picture of his coming is one of trouble. He says that when he comes back, will he find any faith on the earth? And he's asking rhetorically, he says that, that as, as the days increase before his coming, he says, the love of people will grow cold because lawlessness will increase. He says that the love of people will grow cold because lawlessness will increase. And we see that, right? Lawlessness leads to, to fear. It leads to anger. It doesn't lead to love. So God is for order and peace. But, but one of the bittersweet realities of this season is that it, it highlights it highlights two things that are in great tension. One of the bitter realities of this season is it highlights two things that are in tension. It highlights the groaning that all humanity shares for justice and unity. No matter how they see it, they all groan for that. And, and that can draw us together, right, in compassion. But at the same time, it highlights the differences we have as those who, who the differences that we have as Christians with the world, who know that we will not find lasting peace here. In, in other words, we as believers of all people should not be fooled by the idea that, that we should put all our marbles in the, the basket of this world in, in any regard, whether it's going to the right college, whether it's marrying the right person, or whether it's attaining the right social justice uh, melu culture. We should fight for good in all of those things. But, but when our hopes are set on this world and peace through man and as opposed to through Christ and the gospel, when our hopes, not, not, not that we shouldn't work for it, but when we put our central hopes on this world for things that this world cannot ultimately deliver on, we will invite a spirit of hopelessness, of disillusionment, of rage, of quiet bitterness, of superiority that will fill our hearts. Kind of getting back to what Jared pointed out today, Peter's invitation when he talked about Jesus, you know, when they brought this social justice issue to Jesus, Peter's invitation to this crowd was not government policy or, or even self-improvement tips. He said, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. He was saying, you are living in a corrupt world. 
You need to save yourself from it through turning to Christ, through turning to Christ for the forgiveness of your own sins. See, what Peter was saying and what he's saying to us is that our problem is not first horizontal. It's not first with each other. Our problem is not social with each other at at the first. Our, Our core problem is vertical. Our core problem is not social morality, but religious morality. It's not first and foremost what we get wrong with each other. It's what we have gotten wrong with God. And and so he did not propose that day uh, a, a menu for fixing their political problems, even though, again, they had political problems. They had prejudices. They had racial and religious problems, and we'd see that in Acts. In fact, a significant theme in the books of Acts is getting Peter the Apostle himself to embrace the Gentiles and then to talk his fellow Jewish uh, brothers and sisters into embracing the Gentiles. It's a process that, that takes time for Peter. How much more will it take time for us? But the Holy Spirit knew at Pentecost that the way to get to that, most importantly, was that, that he had to get a hold of the hearts of the people in their view of God, and in their worship of God, that that there had to be a functional, real reconciliation with God in each of them, or it was not going to happen horizontally between each other. So, And so Peter does not preach on human concerns of morality, divorced from concerns about worship. He preaches on worship true worship of the true God. He preaches on Christ before he preaches on anything else. He'll have a lot to say. Paul will have a lot to say about how we shall treat each other, but it's never divorced from the priority of our relationship with God. And and, and when the crowd looked to God for forgiveness and experienced it through Christ, their relationships with each other were transformed. When the crowd looked to God for forgiveness and experienced it through Christ, it began to transform their relationship with one another. The the greatest miracle at Pentecost was not the flames and the wind or the miracle of divine language translation. It, It was the love that was birthed first between people and God, and then because of that, between each other in a way that they had never experienced before. They had never experienced this before, these people. And, and, and it, it blew the society around them away. It says that they had favor with all the people. This little baby church was, was shocking to the, to the Jewish people around them who were seeing it. They were like, what is this? This is amazing. I, I want to get on in this. So what I, what I want to say as an application from this is it, it, as we interact with one another and as we interact with the world about social issues, I just want to exhort you, do not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the only hope for the world. You know, I, I think sometimes we can be bullied almost into seeing that what we've got to care about most of all is, is racism, or we've got to care about uh, police brutality, or we've got to care about, um, you know, Antifa and solving that problem, or we've got to care about uh, justice for, for law enforcement officers, or we've got to care about... I hope we solve all those things, you know, as a nation. I hope we solve racism as a nation. I really do. Um, I I hope that we protect our police officers from harm. I really do. And we should seek the eradication of injustice in every godly and peaceful way we can. I'm not saying that. But brothers and sisters, I just want to exhort you, please, no, do not think for one second that if we were to solve racism in this country, that peace and unity would suddenly descend on America and we would embrace some utopian new age. It it would not happen. Listen, my ancestors and some of yours as well came from a country where everyone literally looked the same, the exact same skin color. In fact, in Ireland, where I came from, everybody looks like they came from the same mom. I mean, you did, they just, everybody looks like each other. That did not keep all these same skinned people from Dublin to Belfast, from trying to blow each other to bits in car bombs and terrorist attacks for decades. The the same skin color did not keep hatred and warfare rampant in the Korean Peninsula between the North region and the South region in in the 50s. It's not keeping it between uh, similarly skinned people in Syria right now. So 
again, please don't hear what I'm not saying. We should ask the Lord to help us find and, and eradicate any racism in our hearts that's there. And as long as racism might lodge itself in our hearts, we, we pervert the heart of God. We distort his message. So let's hate it. Let's denounce it. And let's ask God to help us find ways to move toward people of color, because most of us are not that, but in, in our church community. But most of all, we have to not be ashamed of the only real solution that lasts, and we must pray for power and love to know how to respectfully and gently be ambassadors of Jesus, first and foremost, because it does not matter what color you are. If you're not reconciled to Jesus, you have no hope, and and that's what we're called to share. Fourth and last, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. Fourth and last, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. Um, Notice in this text how the Holy Spirit works through the means of listening. Now, now listen, this last point is, is pretty broad, and it may not be the most theologically precise application from this text, but I, I do think it's in keeping with the Spirit of the Lord to, to call you to something, to not miss something very obvious. The Holy Spirit worked and revealed himself in listening and hearing, okay? The Holy Spirit was at work in the listening and the hearing of the crowd, not in the mocking, not in the mocking. When the miracle of Pentecost occurred, there were many people who mocked. But Peter's plea in verse 22 was was a very specific action item. He said, listen, listen. And in verse 37, when the people heard, the Spirit confirmed Jesus Christ in their hearts. So here's a very obvious, very broad, very general, but I think crucially important call for us. There is a time, this this right now is a time when opinions on the left and the right are flying back and forth in great abundance. Opinions and viewpoints and exhortations and demagoguery is, is flying back and forth faster than any of us can keep up with it in great abundance. But do you know what's not in abundance right now? Listening. Careful listening. Knee-jerking is in abundance. Reacting and bad wagon jumping and posting on social media and, 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 and mocking and critiquing will be very easy right now. But, but taking the time to listen and think carefully will be harder. And, and, and many people especially African-Americans who are scared and angry and, and, and especially those involved in law enforcement communities that are being damaged right now, uh, police officers and their family, they're feeling very unjustly accused. And, and both of those particular communities are going to need folks who can listen to them carefully and then respond out of love after listening. And, you know, I'm ashamed to say that as I reflect on, on my 48 years of life, I think listening well is one of the least attended to uh, and yet most vital aspects of, of my own life. Uh, but, but I see it all around me too. Proverbs 18.13 says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. You know, just the other day, when Jen comes to me with a problem, if she's very upset about something, there are so many moments where I just, I just want to solve it. I just want to react. I want to fix it. Or in some cases, I want to defend or explain. But, but more and more, I'm seeing that my first need is to listen. When she's upset or concerned, I need to listen. It doesn't mean that I'm going to end up agreeing. Sometimes I won't. It doesn't mean that at some point I don't offer solutions or another viewpoint. That is often what God will call us to do for one another. But if I can do a better job at starting with a desire to really listen, I don't think there's one moment in my relationship with her that won't be affected. And, and if I can do that with you guys, if I can do a better job at starting with a desire to really listen, there's not one relationship in my life that won't be affected for God's good pleasure. I, I'm seeing this better than I'm doing it. <laughs> but, but, but I just want to exhort us all to, to stop right now and think about can I listen to this person? I may not agree with them, 
but can I make sure that I'm trying to listen? And listen, I know there's foolishness out there. Like there's stuff that's just crude. It's just angry. It's just obviously blatantly evil and sinful. I'm not saying like, oh, it's like, just bless that. Say amen to that. But, but I'm saying that we might need to, to be more careful than we think about listening. There's an African-American Christian who uh, a couple of years ago sought care from his white brothers and sisters in Christ uh, when some stuff happened in Ferguson a few years ago when a man was killed there. And, and he wrote that, he wrote this recently uh, on Facebook, and I, I thought it was really good. Just listen to his heart here. Post-Ferguson, I was at my lowest point. There had been a series of tragic shootings that unnerved me, preparing the way for me to be rocked by the grand jury's decision. It broke things in me that I did not know existed. I wept daily for weeks, and in my pain, I did not craft a perfectly worded response or articulate my thoughts with supreme carefulness. But I did attempt to give my brothers and sisters a window into my world. In large part, my invitation was met with harsh critiques, defensiveness, strong disapproval, and deafening silence. I can't tell you which hurt more, sharing in the grief of African-Americans or dealing with rejection from people who I trusted and who I believed loved me. My emotions were raw, but should not have solicited the kind of vitriol that came my way. What happened next was something that I never expected and what most would not think to anticipate. I began to doubt God. I have pursued and preached unity and love that bridges racial and cultural divides. I am fully persuaded that unity among diversity is rooted in the gospel, but it wasn't working for me. And I started to think that political allegiances, I started to think that political allegiances and racial identity had a stronger pull than the good news of sins forgiven. I dare not cast too much blame. We all stumble in many ways, and all of us are in the middle of our sanctification, meaning we're, we're all growing in Christ. But that doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for our failures. As a chief failure myself, I know this all too well. So when a black brother or sister shares their grief, your job is not to argue for your point of view or write them off as being emotional or dismiss them because you, quote, just don't understand, unquote, or seek to correct what you think is misguided. Your job is to be a spirit-filled witness of Jesus Christ. Show them the resurrection power of the gospel. Display the kindness and compassion of our Savior. We need to see that what divides people in the world does not divide Christians in the church. The stakes are incredibly high. That's what he wrote. It really touched me. Listen, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. Giving and receiving correction is supposed to be a tool in the box of every believer. God commands us at times to, in gentleness, rebuke or correct or bring different viewpoints. There must be a time and a way to bring critique and love, or we'll go to the wrong extreme. But there is a reason, I believe, why God gave us two ears and one mouth. There is a reason why God commands us to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger. There is a reason why he calls us to mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep, not bring swift correction and your perspective and your viewpoint immediately. Again, I'm not saying there's never a place for that. There, there is often a place for that. But I, I'm learning late in life, I think, more and more that, 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 the, that the, the degree of deep emotional pain that someone is experiencing because of suffering that, that they've experienced is, is negatively correlated with their readiness for anything else for me but besides compassion and listening. The deeper the suffering, the greater the likelihood that what is most needed from me is not solutions, but listening with compassion. And so, so I just want to exhort each of us, when you hear 
about police officers saying they feel like they're being all thrown in to the basket of Officer Chauvin. And you want to say, you're just not getting it. You're just not seeing it. I just want to ask you to affirm their pain in your heart and, and be quick to listen in your heart and slow to speak. You may not have an opportunity to talk to them, but it starts in your own you know, posture in your heart. When you hear about African-Americans in pain and in fear over what has happened to others and not even necessarily them, but what they, what they hear has happened to other African-Americans in this country, even, even if you might question their objective justification for their emotional posture and you feel like they're coming across, can you take the time to listen and affirm that their experience of pain is real at this point? And, and be quick to listen, slow to speak. When you hear that people's stores are burned down, that they're, they're being trampled on, you can affirm that their pain is real and be quick to listen and slow to speak. Uh, I, I'm just trying to call for this very basic idea, which is that relating to people and showing Jesus Christ, I think a lot more often than we think. And, and then this, this age of kind of, out, this age of outrage shows us calls us to a kind of listening and a kind of compassion uh, that's really central to showing who Jesus is in the Lord. Um, folks, that's it for me this morning. That was a long message. It is really late. Uh, I want to thank you guys for being here. I, I apologize for keeping you all this long, um, but I want to say thank you guys for being here, and I want to pray the Lord's grace over you. So let me just pray for, for you all. Lord, I just pray in Jesus' name uh, that you would help us to set our hope on you and not on this world, that we would both be able to be ambassadors of Jesus in our own hearts, remember that our hope is not here, that things here are going to crumble, they are going to break, but that we have a hope that doesn't crumble and a hope that doesn't go away in Jesus Christ. Help us to, Lord, be nourished by your gospel and your comfort this week. And help us to give that gospel and that comfort to those as we have opportunity. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.